With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation. It's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA podcast, brought to you, of course, by our great friends at Alumni Hall, home of the best selection of Georgia sports gear that you're going to find anywhere on planet Earth. As you guys know, I am your host, Tyler, and as promised, I know we had to push it back a couple of days, but as promised, I am back today to run through part two of our June recruiting mailbag. We did part one this time last week. Ideally, we would have run both episodes in the same week, but with the 2024 SEC schedule release, we had to press the pause button on the mailbag and cover that real quick. But here we are, we are back, and we've got a ton more questions to run through. I'm going to try to get through all of them, guys. I am. That's the goal today. I tried to carve out as much time as I could here to knock them all out. So let's not waste any time, guys. Let's go ahead and dive right into it off the top. And we're going to open with a big picture question from Bert. I don't think we've ever had a question from Bert. Bert, you can hit me up again. Remind me if I'm wrong. I think this is the first question we've had from you. So I appreciate you listening and I appreciate the question. So Bert asks, a lot of people think Georgia has a legitimate chance at the best class ever. What is a realistic group of players that they could close with to pull it off? Well, Bert, that is a fantastic question. And I actually agree with those people that you referenced that do think that Georgia has a legitimate chance to pull off the greatest recruiting class of all time. Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you it is a done deal, put it in the bag, it's happening. I can't tell you that because recruiting is a very fickle beast. We are talking about 17 and 18-year-old kids, man. And if any of you have any 17 or 18-year-old kids in your life, you know what I mean. Things change. Things change real quick with kids that age especially when 17, 18 year old kids are being targeted by professional salesmen. Let's not make any mistake about it, guys. That's what college coaches are. Yes, they coach football, but when it comes to recruiting, they are professional salesmen. They are selling a brand. They are selling a university. They are selling a program. They're selling a vision. And most of these kids just don't have the life experience to really be able to handle everything that is thrown at them. Sure, there are some parents who do a really good job of helping their children navigate this process, but for most of these parents, they've never experienced anything like this. They don't know what to do because the parents, guys, they are being recruited just as much as these kids are. And the parents, if they've never experienced this, how would they know how to handle it? And so you get pulled in a ton of different directions. 
Things change. Circumstances change. Maybe the the commit list of a team that you are strongly considering changes. Maybe they get another recruit at your position and you don't know how you really fit in anymore. Things change, guys. And that's why you see so many decommitments more, I feel like more so than ever before. I mean, there's always been decommitments, but it seems like they're happening at a rapid rate, especially with the rise of social media and, and the attention some of these guys can get for dragging things out. But the bottom line is recruiting is a very inexact science and things change by the minute sometimes. But saying that, I do think that we, again, have a legitimate chance, a very real chance to pull off the best class ever. Now, it is going to take some heavy lifting. We are going to have to land some big fishes down the stretch, but here's what I can say. We are approximately halfway through this 2024 recruiting cycle, right? We're in here mid-June. The cycle ends, really, I guess, technically it ends in February 2024, but I mean, really, most of the the haze in the barn by the early signing period, which is in mid-December. So we are roughly halfway through this recruiting cycle, and what we have done through the first six months or so of this recruiting cycle is put ourselves in position to have a chance to make a run at the best class ever. That's all you can ask for at this point because you're not going to have your commit list fully filled out. That's not going to happen at this point. You're still going to have some big fishes. A lot of these big time prospects, they wait to the end because they want to drag it out. They want to go into official visits. They want the attention on them. For a variety of different reasons, they drag things out. So certainly we are going to have to see how things end, how we close, who we finish the drill with. But where we sit right now, it's very much a realistic possibility that we can finish with the best class ever. And there are basically no other schools in the country right now that can sit here and say that. Now you can never really count Alabama out. They're way down the list right now, but they only have a small handful of recruits like number 17, the 247 sports composite rankings right now. That will change. They're not going to finish outside of the top 10. That's never happened under Nick Saban. It will never happen under Nick Saban, just like it's not ever going to happen under Kirby Smart. So they will make their run, but right now we are in a position, we have put ourselves in a position to make that a real possibility, to finish with the best class ever. Now, what does that mean, best class ever? Is that entirely subjective? In some ways, I guess you could say it's subjective, but with the advent of all these recruiting services and especially the 247 composite ratings, we now have a way of measuring these things. Now, again, recruiting, as I said, is a very inexact science. So just because you sign the highest rated recruiting class of all time doesn't mean that it will necessarily turn out that way. Will all those players pan out? Will all the five stars play up to five-star level? You don't really know those things, but all we can do is measure it off signing classes. Like what are these guys ranked when they commit? And the standard right now for best class ever is Texas A&M's 2022 recruiting class, which I know has completely fallen apart at this point. Some of those guys have transferred out, but again, All we can measure on is who they signed when they signed that class. Not where they are right now, but when they signed that class, Texas A&M's 2022 recruiting class remains the standard two years later. And in that class, they had 333 points. What does that mean? Essentially, there's a point value assigned to all these different prospects based on their rankings in the 247 composite. And when you add all those together, it gives you a point total. A&M had 333 in 2022. Bama got close last year. They hit 327. A&M did that with 30 commits. Bama did it with 28 commits last year. So where do we sit right now? Currently, we sit at 292.18 points with 19 commitments on our commit list. So we are at 292 right now with room to add anywhere from probably 8 to 11 more prospects. 
So do the math there. Yes, we absolutely have a shot to surpass A&M for the quote-unquote best class ever. It will come down to two things. Obviously, number one, it's going to come down to who do we sign down the stretch? And then number two, it'll come down to how many are we going to take? If we only take 25, we only take six more prospects, we are not going to hit 333. We're not going to hit 327 where Bama was last year. We're just not going to. But if we take 28, if we take 29, if we take 30 maybe like A&M did back in 2022, yeah, it's a very real possibility. Again, if we land those top guys, those big fish that are still out there uncommitted right now. We obviously will not land all of them, but will we land enough of them to push us over the top? That is the question. And that brings me to the second part of Bert's question. What is a realistic group of players that we could close with to pull it off? Well, that's a tough question to answer because again, at this point, we're halfway through the recruiting cycle. There are so many moving parts here, so many unanswered questions, so many big fish out there. It's tough to say who we are going to land, but here's what I did. I, I basically went through each position that we are recruiting, all the positions on the team, and looked, okay, where do we stand right now at that position? Are we full at that position? If we aren't full at that position, who are the guys that we are heavily involved with to fill out that position? And where do we sit with those guys? Where are we in their top three or their top five? I wanted to try to put together as realistic a predicted finish as I possibly could. Now, again, I, I, I can't sit here and say with a straight face, this is how it's going to work out. I don't know. We'll see. I, I hope it works out this way. I don't know. We'll find out. But I think it's realistic that we land the following guys. So here's what I did. I went and I pulled up 247 Sports Class Calculator. If you guys aren't familiar with that, it's a really cool tool that 247 Sports offers. You basically can take the current commits you have and hypothetically add a couple of guys that you could potentially add in the future and see what it does to your point total. What does it do to your class ranking? So this isn't Tyler running numbers himself because as I always tell you, I suck at math. I don't want to do that to you. This is a computer program doing it for me. I'm just putting names into the machine, into the class calculator, and it's spitting out these numbers, okay? And first, I'm just going to start with the guys that I feel really good about us landing. If you want to call them tier one guys in terms of like, these are guys I think we have the best shot of landing than tier two guys. Guys, I think we have a really good shot of landing, but I'm not 100% sure than tier three are guys like we have a shot with. They're letting us recruit them, but it's still very much an uphill battle. So if you want to break it it down into those three tiers, these are the tier one guys that I feel great about us landing either because A, they've made a ton of visits to Athens and I always say follow the visits or, or B, most recruiting writers out there continue to say that we are in very good position with them or C, guys that I have been told by my sources here in town that are guys that either we lead for or in some cases even currently on our commit list as silent commits. So here are what I would classify as like tier one guys. I've got KJ Bolden, certainly not a done deal, five-star prospect. You got you never know until you know if these, if these guys are that highly recruited, but I feel really good about where we are right now. This guy's made more than 15 visits to Athens throughout the course of his recruitment by far more than anywhere else that he has visited. A guy named Joseph Jonah Agene out of Texas, who is like a five, a five tech defensive end kind of guy that very much could be on our commit list sooner rather than later. Uh, Nate Frazier, guy we talked about last week, running back from Matter Day out in California. Very high on him. Daniel Calhoun, offensive lineman. Carter Nelson, guy we talked about last week. 
tight end slash jumbo wide receiver. Uh, Chris Cole is a guy that we're going to talk about a little bit later on, but he's a linebacking prospect that I feel like we have a very good shot with right now, especially considering some of the developments at inside linebacker that we're going to talk about a little bit later on. Marquise Easley is another offensive lineman I like. Those are the guys. That's what? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven guys I'm going to put in tier one that I feel like we have a really good shot with right now. And if we just add those seven guys, so that would bump us up to 26 commitments, that would put our team score up to 318.32. So not quite good enough to top a and really not quite good enough to get past where Alabama was in the 2023 cycle. But as you probably noticed, there are some big, big fish that I left off of my tier one list that I also think we have a really good shot at landing. Now, we're not going to land all of these guys that are in tier two. We're not going to land all of them but we're also not going to land zero of them. We're going to land some of them. So the guys that I would put in tier two right now for us would be Justin Scott, defensive lineman out of Chicago, the guy that I had number one on my list of top five most wanted prospects on last week's episode. Then we've got Jordan Ross, who is an edge rusher, a big-time five-star edge rusher out of Birmingham, Alabama. And then here from the state of Georgia, out of Statesboro, we've got Cameron Michael, who is a DB, six foot one seventy-three, is a four-star DB prospect. And I'm also going to throw Iden Braylon from Santa Ana, California in there as well. It's a defensive tackle prospect. It's a four-star guy. Top 100 caliber player. 6'5", about 285, 290. I like where we sit with him currently right now. So I'll throw him in there with tier two as well. So there you have it. Those are what I would probably classify as my tier two guys right now. Now we're going to land all those? No, of course we're not. But how many, how many names did I read out there? That was what, four guys? Two of them are five-star prospects. Two of them are four-star prospects. So let's just split it and call it even. Let's say we land one of the five-star guys and one of the four-star guys. There is certainly a chance that we sweep all those guys and we land all four of them. But for argument's sake, let's just say we get two of them. We split the deal. So if I throw in, let's say, Justin Scott and Auden Bryland, the, the two demons of tackles, if I throw both those guys in there, one a five-star, one a four-star, that brings us up to 28 commitments and a 325.21 team score. So right there on the precipice of where Alabama was, which is also, by the way, one of the highest rated recruiting classes in the history of recruiting classes, where they were last year, but still short of where A&M was. But there's still room potentially, depends on how our numbers work out, who declares for the draft, who transfers. You never know how these numbers are going to work out. But you know, again, A&M went to 30 commits back in 2022 we could potentially get upwards near 30 commits. So there's another one or two spots there left. So who could we potentially land there? This is where you got to look at some of these big fish out there that maybe we don't lead with right now, but we still have a puncher's chance. And I would look specifically at those three five-star wide receivers that we are recruiting very heavily right now. And I would not say that we necessarily lead for any of the three, in fact, I would probably say that we don't lead for any of the three, but you got Mike Matthews at our Parkview High School here in Georgia, Ryan Wingo out of Missouri, and Jeremiah Smith, of course, number one wide receiver in the country, the number two overall prospect out of the state of Florida. Now, there is no guarantee that we will land any of those three guys. There's no guarantee whatsoever, but I also think that we can pull one of them. I think that we can pull one of those guys. Now, who is that one going to be? I don't know, guys. I go back and forth on this. I mean, I get conflicting information. The information changes because, again, they're 78 year old kids. Things change. We definitely don't lead for Mike Matthews out of Parkview right now based on what I am hearing. Guys, I'm from Gwinnett County. I still have some people I know around around that area. In fact, Parkview was my rival. I went to Brookwood High School. So I, I still have some contacts in that area. And that on top of some of the people I know around town here in Athens, 
what I'm hearing is that we don't lead for Matthews right now, but we're also not completely out of the picture. Him and his family are certainly giving us the opportunity to convince them that Georgia is the right place for them. Obviously, there's a lot of negative recruiting that goes along with with, uh, our wide receiver recruiting right now. We have a question about that later on. We will get to that a little bit more. So I don't think we lead for Matthews, but I'm also not going to close the door on the possibility that we could land him. I kind of feel similar about Wingo. I think we have a better shot to land Wingo than Matthews right now. And Smith, I don't know, man. I know there's a lot of smoke around us potentially being able to land him when Raiola committed a, couple, a month or so ago. I, I'm not feeling that. I have not heard from anyone that I know or trust that has told me that, oh yeah, like we're in really good shape for this guy. I have not heard that from anyone. I had also not read that anywhere. So I would love to have the guy. He was on my top, top five most wanted list, but I'm also realistic about this, understanding that that's probably not going to happen. But let's say we land one of them. Let's say we go with, with Wingo there. So if I add him to the class calculator, that bumps us up to 328.08, which would be better than what Alabama put up in 2023. But still, again, short of where AM was back in 2022. So we are going to have to close really strong with some of these big name guys. We're going to have to get our fair share of them. So let's go back to Jordan Ross. Let's say I throw in Jordan Ross. I do feel like we have a really good shot to land this guy. He's visited Athens a number of times. I've heard really good things about where we stand with him, not just like recently, but going back for a little while. So it's certainly within the realm of possible that we land him. So if I had him the commit list, that puts us at 30 and that gets us to 330.37 as our team score. But let's say that I throw in a guy like Justin Williams, who's the number one inside linebacker in the country, who, oh, by the way, will be making an official visit to Athens this coming weekend. He's a guy I would probably put in tier three. I don't think that we lead for him. And quite honestly, I don't know exactly where we stand with him. I haven't heard a ton from people that I know. We'll see what I can get from, from them after this weekend when he makes his visit here to Athens over the weekend. But he's coming for an official visit. We have a needed inside linebacker in this class. We've missed on some guys over the past week or two. So there's an opportunity there. Can we sell him on that? Can Glenn Schumann say, look, dude, look at what I've done putting guys into the league? Maybe not likely, but also not possible. So if I add his name to the list, that brings us up to 333.08, right there where AM was in 2022. Now, as you can tell from what I just laid out, that is going to take some doing. It is going to take us winning some big time recruiting battles. It is going to take us overcoming some significant negative recruiting. But I also wouldn't put anything past Kirby Smart and I wouldn't put anything past this Georgia staff. The opportunity is there. I'll go back to what I said at the outset. The opportunity is there. We have put ourselves in position to have a shot to finish with the greatest class in the history of recruiting classes. It is quite simply going to come down to how many of those big-time recruiting battles can we win down the stretch. Now, the thing that I haven't mentioned yet is like, well, are we sure that the guys that we have on our commit list right now are going to stay on our commit list through the rest of this cycle? Because decommitments happen. Flips happen. You never know. That's part of the fun with recruiting. You never know. But even if some guys flip or some guys get encouraged, maybe look elsewhere, they kind of get the message. There's also the potential that we fill those spots with better prospects, more highly rated prospects. So all I'm saying is there's a shot. I wouldn't call it a likelihood at this point. I would say we have an outside shot at finishing with the highest rated class in the history of recruiting classes. But outside shot or not, we still got a shot. And how many programs out there can actually say that with a straight face? All right, guys, I got a ton more to cover here today, but before we go any further, I do want to get this out of the way real quick. I just want to remind you guys again about our great friends at Alumni Hall. I was able to hook my dad up with some awesome new George gear for Father's Day. I saw that little twinkle in his eye when he opened his gift. 
I saw my brothers kind of roll their eyes when when he opened his gifts because they knew that once again I had won Father's Day at Alumni Hall. But even though Father's Day has come and gone, it doesn't mean we forget about Alumni Hall because now is the time for you guys to go out and treat yourself a little bit. They have all the best brands. Of course, they have Nike. They have Nike Golf. They have Cutter and Buck. They have Peter Millar. They have Johnny O, which is one of my favorites. And finally, they have Onward Reserve, which if you guys haven't tried Onward Reserve, they have some of the best feeling material that I have ever put on my body. It feels fantastic. Now, it doesn't always fit me the way that I want it to fit me, but I'm also like a, I have a very, very strange body type, but I know a lot of people out there love Onward Reserve. So if you are one of those people, they've got it now at Alumni Hall. So treat yourself this summer, guys. There's no shame in that. You can stop by in-store inside the Epsbridge Shopping Center or online at alumnihall.com because Alumni Hall is where the Bulldogs shop. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, guys, we got a lot more to get to, man. So let's keep this thing rolling. And next up, we got a question from Nick. We got a couple of questions about quarterbacks. We're open with Nick's question. Nick asks, what are your thoughts on taking two quarterbacks? Isn't it a guarantee that one will transfer, especially now with NIL? Thank you for the question, Nick. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the show, my man. Uh, It was a good question. Good question here. I understand where you're coming from, especially now in the context of not just NIL, but the transfer portal as well. It's that combination, man. NIL, transfer portal, it is just wreaking havoc on rosters across the country. And we are certainly not immune to that. So I, I get where you're coming from here, but here's what I would say to this, Nick. Here's why we had to take two quarterbacks in this class. It's all about death, man. It's all about death. And I am with you. i would certainly agree that it's very unlikely that both Dylan Riola and Ryan Pliglisi, the two quarterbacks that we have committed in this class, it's very unlikely that both of them will finish their careers in Athens, but you don't necessarily need them to. Right now, we have to look at the immediate future, like 2024, because if you look at the quarterback room going to 2024, there's a very realistic chance that only one of the three scholarship quarterbacks in our room right now will actually still be on the roster when the 2024 season opens. Because if Carson Beck is as good as I think he is going to be this season, there's a strong likelihood that Carson jumps to the NFL. Because this dude has been in college for four years. If he has the year I think he's going to have, we have the, the year that I think our team could have, I think there's a very, very realistic chance that he jumps to the NFL. So there's one of your three out the door. And then, of course, that leaves you Brock Vandegrift, who would be a redshirt junior, and Gunnar Stockton, who would be a redshirt sophomore. 
And let's just say for argument's sake, it's one of those two guys who ends up winning the job going into 2024. And it's not Pugliese, it's not Raiola as a true freshman. They don't win the job. They're not quite ready. For argument's sake, let's just say that. So it, let's say it's Vandegrift. Let's say Vandegrift wins the job. Is Gunnar Stockton really going to sit around? I, I don't know. Maybe. But I think there's a really good chance he could transfer. I, I can almost tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt that if Gunnar Stockton wins that job and Brock Vandegrift does not win the job going into 2024, he is gone. He is transferring. There's zero doubts about that. That's just a, a time thing. Like the dude's the clock is ticking. He only has so many years left to actually try to win a job somewhere in college football. So if one of them transfer and we only took one scholarship quarterback this class, you guys know I suck at math. I can do that math. One plus one equals two. That means we would only have two scholarship quarterbacks in our QB room going into 2024. And that is not a healthy situation. Remember, we did not take a quarterback in the 2023 recruiting class. We didn't take a single guy. We put we went all in on Arch Manning just to see if we had a shot because we didn't need one in that class. It didn't end up working out. We got close. Obviously, ends up going to Texas. And that put us in a position where, oh, we need to take two quarterbacks in 2024. So yes, we have got to have two guys, if just for depth purposes for 2024 alone, if nothing else. And if one of them ends up transferring down the road, okay, whatever, we'll deal with that when we have to. But it would at least have some depth in that room in 2024. That's very scary, guys. The idea of going into a season with two scholarship quarterbacks, that is an exceedingly frightening proposition. And then beyond that, you want to get as much talent in that room as you possibly can. Like our, our coaches aren't dumb. We understand that we only play one quarterback at a time. And whoever doesn't win that job between Raiola and Puglisi will almost certainly transfer. Our coaches get that. But you want to have as much competition as you possibly can. You want to see who is the guy that is going to rise to the top. If you just get Raiola and you don't have somebody to push him there, what if he doesn't end up panning out? Like we all hope he will. We all think he will. But what if he doesn't? There's five-star guys every single year that never really end up panning out. Spencer Rattler, I know South Carolina fans think he's like the second coming of Jesus Christ, but I mean, that dude is a big-time five-star prospect. How's that worked out? I mean, Quinn Ewers, I know he's still a young guy, but he was like the highest-rated quarterback ever, and I know he retired his first year at Ohio State, which really really should have been his senior year in high school last year at Texas, the second year out of high school, but should have been his freshman year. He uh, he enrolled early at Ohio State, got out of high school early so he could go make NIL money. Texas had this law that said if you were in high school, you couldn't take NIL money, so he said, screw that, I'm gone, I'm just going to go ahead and go to college, went to Ohio State, took that money, didn't work out for him there, transfers back to Texas, and now he's the quarterback in Austin. But as, as a first-year starter last year, Quinn Ewers was terrible. He was not remotely good. One of the most inaccurate quarterbacks I've ever seen. Honestly, he was less accurate than Anthony Richardson was. And y'all know how bad Anthony Richardson was when it came to his accuracy. Remember Tate Martell all those years ago? The list is long, guys. I mean, a lot of these five-star guys obviously do pan out, but also a couple of guys every year, it seems like, that just don't really end up panning out. So I hope Ryle is not that guy. I don't think Ryle is going to be that guy. I'm very excited about him. But you just never know. So when you take another highly rated quarterback in the same class, what it does is it reduces your margin for error. If one of the guys doesn't end up panning out, hopefully the other guy does. It just simply increases your odds. It enhances your odds that you hit on one of those guys. That's that's really what it does. So yeah, if you can get two guys of that caliber, absolutely. You got a, the number one overall prospect in the country. You have another essentially top 100 prospect in Ryan Pugliese with a really high ceiling. He's certainly not as polished as Raiola is right now, but his ceiling is very high. He's got a really strong arm, spins the ball very, very well. 
and I love his attitude. Don't know the kid, but just how he's handled this whole recruit, recruitment process with Riola jumping on board. He could have easily gone somewhere else, but the way that he's kind of just stuck it out and said, look, no, I'm coming to Georgia. I'm not backing down. I love that mentality. So he's got a shot to be a really good quarterback in his own right. So taking two guys, especially two guys that highly rated, that talented, it just increases our potential for hitting on one of those guys. That's really what it does. So I think you have to take it for that reason, take two guys for that reason and for the depth purposes. All right, next up, sticking with the quarterback theme, we got a question from Joey who asked about the Elite 11 camp. If you guys missed it over the weekend, which I'm pretty sure you did, and if you were on social media at all, you're very well aware the Elite 11 quarterback camp was taking place out in, was it Redondo, California, somewhere around there, Redondo High School. And speaking of Riola and Pluclisi, both of them were out there in California participating in the Elite 11 camp. So Joey asked, do you feel better or worse about Riola and Pluclisi than you did before the Elite 11? That's, that's, a, that's a good question. I don't know if my opinions really changed all that much. I thought Riola was a baller. I love his tape. I think he does an incredible job throwing off platform. I think he moves. He's a, he's a functionally mobile quarterback. He's not a super athletic guy, but he's functionally mobile. He can move enough. He can move the pocket. He can escape pressure when he needs to. He throws an absolutely gorgeous deep ball. I think he has great arm talent, a really strong arm. I think his ball placement is really strong. I think he's the total package. I think he is the real deal. And it's that seemed to play itself out at the Elite 11 camp. Now, what you have to understand, guys, when it comes to these camps and the reports that you get, all of the analysis that you get is filtered through someone else's lens. And all of these guys out there, all these reporters who get credentials to go out there and cover the Elite 11 camp, almost all of them have certain, I don't want to say like they're agenda driven, but they cover different outlets. There's guys that cover Georgia. There's guys that cover Florida. There's guys that cover Southern California. They cover different teams. And certainly they're typically in most cases more apt to see the quarterbacks of the teams that they cover more favorably than the guys from other schools. That That's just how these things work, guys. I'm not saying that they do it deliberately. It just tends to work out that way. It's funny how the guys from Georgia report that, I mean, Riola is just tearing up. He's the best quarterback there. Then you got guys from Florida who cover Florida say, man, DJ Lagway, like, he's the best guy there. And you got the Alabama guys say, no, it's Julian Sane. He's by far head and shoulders above better than everybody else. Like, how does that happen? How do all these guys have different opinions on the same guys at the same camp that they're all at? And that's a big part of it. The other part of it is not everybody knows what they're talking about. Let's just call it what it is. There are varying degrees of actual technical football knowledge within the college ball media. Some guys are really good. They know what they're talking about. There's other guys that don't have a freaking clue. And so it was just hilarious over the weekend, reading all these reports and looking at all these lists and, and all these rankings of the quarterbacks and how they performed this day and that day and this drill versus that drill from all these different media outlets and how they were so wildly divergent in their opinions. I just got a kick out of that. But here's the thing, when it comes to the Elite 11 guys, with me not being there myself and not being able to put my eyes on these guys, sure, I saw some clips here and there, but I mean, those are very isolated clips. Anybody can can luck into a great throw here or there. So I don't have a super strong opinion on the Elite 11 because again, I wasn't there. I tend to trust myself, my own eyes, more than I trust other people telling me what they saw. That's why I used to love to go to the 7-on-7 camps here in Athens. I used to go to those every single year. I would just kind of walk in. I knew a few people. Sometimes I would just kind of just walk in and stand there because they don't know if you're just a uh, a random dude or are you the parent or the brother of somebody who's participating there? Are you on a coaching staff somewhere? They usually don't know those things, but Kirby Smart has put that on lockdown over the past couple of years. So my days of going to 7-on-7 camps, those are over. I used to sneak into dog night every year. We no longer have dog night, so I can't sneak into that. But yeah, I used to have fun doing that kind of stuff. Nowadays, no, man, that's like... 
get thrown in jail if I even like look at the football facility when, when those things were going on. But here's what I did take away from all the reporting coming out of the Elite, the Elite 11 camp. Raiola is the real deal, guys. I thought that coming in, and that seemed to be the general consensus among pretty much everybody that was there once the whole camp was over. And what everyone was essentially saying is Raiola dominated during the 7-on-7 portion. It, the thing about the Elite 11 camp, more than anything in terms of like trying to evaluate these guys, is it's not a real football setting. It's like a 7-on-7 seven seven setting. Right? It's just it's shorts, and you're running around doing some drills. And I'm not saying that stuff doesn't matter. Like, Sure, you can see how, how accurate a guy is, how strong an arm a guy has. But you don't really go as much into like, okay, how does this guy process? How well does he read coverage? All those kind of things. So even when you get to 7-on-7, seven seven, they're just playing man coverage. Like Very rarely are they zoning anything. It's just like, okay, how good is my receiver out there? And... How is my ball placement? How is my arm? Can I fit it in there? Can I put it into a tight spot? It's not so much about reading coverages and processing and, and really running an offense. All those things that quarterbacks actually have to do, you know, there's no pass rush. There's nothing like that. So you can get something out of it, but I mean, it's a very limited view on how these guys are going to pan out. And, and let me just read some names here to kind of illustrate that. Let me read off the MVPs of the Elite 11 going back a couple of different years here. So in 2019, it was CJ Stroud. That guy really panned out, right? In 2018, Spencer Rattler. I already mentioned him. Mm, I don't know, man. He already got ran out of town one place and was kind of okay, decent, sort of a little bit last year for South Carolina. You go back to 2017, it was Justin Fields. Justin Fields, you know, first on draft pick. That one kind of panned out. And then 2016, go back a little bit further, it was Tua. Okay, that one certainly panned out. Let's go 2015. You've got Shea Patterson. Yeah, he started for a couple years at Michigan, but Shea Patterson never, ever lived up to that hype. Uh, 2014, it was Blake Barnett. Remember that guy? Alabama, then Arizona State, didn't work out at Arizona State, ends up going to Southern Florida. So that one didn't really work out that well. 2013, it was Sean freaking White. Talk about a blast from the past. You guys remember him, right? Auburn, Sean White. Sean White in 2013 won the MVP of the Elite 11 over, get this, Deshaun Watson. That alone right there should make you pause and really reconsider how seriously you take the performances and the reports and ultimately who ends up being named the MVP of these Elite 11 camps. Sure, about what, about 50% of the time, the guy that ends up winning MVP turns out to be a big-time college football player and a big-time NFL player. But the other 50% of the time, they are a complete bust. So it is what it is. But, you know, I will say you would rather the guy that you have on your commit list perform well at that camp than not perform well, right? So in the 7-on-7 portion, which I think is, to me, I put more stock in that than the other portions of the camp because that is the closest that you get to actually simulating a game situation. Now, it's certainly not a game situation because there's no pass rush. Defenses are very limited in what they're doing. You're not actually running a real offense. I mean, for a variety of reasons. But again, it's the closest that you get to it. And in that setting, Raiola, from all accounts, dominated that day, was by far the best quarterback in that setting. He did not win the MVP. He finished second to Julian Sang, who was committed to Alabama, who's a really good quarterback. He's a great guy. We were recruiting that guy pretty heavily for a while, but we kind of zeroed it on, on Raiola, and that's the guy that we went after. That's the guy that we wanted. So if you're looking at the results and saying, well, man, Raiola finished second to Sang, like we're falling behind Bama yet again, like, come on, guys. I mean, let, let, let's take a deep breath here. We're talking about the thinnest of margins there between one and two, and that's, just, that's totally subjective there. And then Puglisi didn't have quite the performance of Raiola, which is kind of what I expected. That didn't surprise me at all. Because again, as I said earlier, Raiola is a more polished quarterback at this point. He is. That's just the reality. But I really like Puglisi's upside. I love 
his makeup. I love all of those things. I think this guy is going to come in here and he's going to compete his ass off. I have zero doubt about that. And he's going to get better and better and better. So I am not going to close the book on Ryan Puglisi. He's got a really strong arm. He's kind of gunslinger type guy. In fact, he was named the, he was named top gunslinger. I think was the award he was given at the elite 11 camp. So he was a guy that didn't finish as high in the overall rankings, but I do think he showcased some tools that he can build on and continue to improve. He's got a, he's not as, he's just not, he's just not as fully developed as some of the other guys that were there as Riola and Say and some of those guys. But I do think he's got some tools, man. He's got, he's got a good frame. He's got a really good, strong arm. He's got some accuracy to his game as well. I think he's a tough dude. So I think he's a guy that can absolutely come in and compete with Riola. And I'm very excited about both of them. So no, like my opinion didn't really change all that much one way or the other with both those guys. It kind of turned out working out the way that I felt it would pretty much going into that thing. All right, guys, let's move away from the quarterback conversation. Let's turn the spotlight on the wide receiver rooms. A lot to break down here. And Sam, who always has great questions, has another great question. Always appreciate it, Sam. Sam asked, do you think Dylan Raiola could convince Mike Matthews to be a dog? Also, if we don't land Matthews, which wide receiver do you feel best about landing to round out this class? So I did kind of touch on this a little bit earlier, but let's dive a little bit more into it right here. Can Raiola convince Mike Matthews to be a dog? Well, I've been pretty open in the past talking about how, I, you know, it's always fun to talk about how these big time quarterbacks you get, these other highly rated recruits you get, how they go out and then and they start recruiting other prospects to join them at, at Georgia or whatever school you're talking about. It's always a fun topic of conversation. It's like, yeah, man, like these guys are fully buying, you know, like they're taking over this class. They're, they're showing leadership already. And that's, that's a, that's a fun point of conversation. Sure. But I, don't really ever put all that much stock in it because the reality, especially these highly rated guys, they're going to make the best decision for themselves. It doesn't matter how strong of a friendship that Dylan Riola and Mike Matthews or Dylan Riola and Ryan Wingo or Dylan Riola and Jeremiah Smith, those three five-star prospects that we're still heavily after. It doesn't matter how strong a relationship they build, how much, how great friends they become over the course of the recruiting process. At the end of the day, for these guys that are that highly rated, that are that talented, this is a business decision. This is a decision that comes down to what is going to help position me the best to make the most money I possibly can in the future as an NFL player. That's what it comes down to. Who's going to develop me the most? Where can I get the most NIL money now? That's got to be a consideration, not for everybody, but for some people to varying degrees, that is certainly a consideration these days. What type of offense does the team run? What is the depth chart like right now? All of these things factor into these decisions. Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that like, you know, Dylan Raiola or whoever it is that's recruiting some of these guys, I'm not going to say it doesn't matter at all, but it's way, 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 way down the list when it comes to ultimately where these guys end up going to college. But as to Matthews in particular, I I think we got a shot. Again, as I said earlier, I would not say that we lead right now. That's what I've heard from multiple different sources. That's what I've been told. He was here not this past weekend, but the prior weekend for his official visit. And I did get some very positive feedback coming out of that visit that we really helped ourselves. We maybe opened his eyes a little bit, but no one said anything to me about us taking the lead or him becoming a silent or anything like that. I have not heard that from anyone. He was at USC for an official visit this past weekend. He's going to Tennessee for an official visit next weekend. So he's still got some official visits on that list. He went to Clemson back on June 2nd. So Here's what I can say about Matthews. We're in the picture. When you get an official visit, you are in the picture. I think our offense and more so the perception of our offense continues to work against us when it comes to potentially landing these big-time five-star prospects. That's really what it is, guys. There's so much negative recruiting that has done against us at the wide receiver position, and it's just been really difficult for us to overcome. 
I do want to address this though real quick because this narrative has been driving me insane for years and it is not relenting. This notion that the Georgia offense is some outdated, antiquated relic where we just line up in the I formation and 22 personnel and just ram it down the middle of the defense all game long. That is how people perceive our offense and it simply could not be further from the truth. It is an example of one of these narratives that inexplicably just takes root and becomes universally accepted truth. I'm not going to sit here and tell you guys that we are among the nation's leaders in passing attempts per game because that's not true. But here's what is true. We throw the ball far more than the average college football fan actually thinks that we do. Because the reality is the average college football fan doesn't really watch all of our games the way that you and I do. And they just take what they hear from these talking heads out there and they just assume that's truth. And And the other reality is the talking heads don't actually watch the games. They watch a few clips here and there. They'll look at the final stat book. They'll look at the box score and they'll draw their conclusions from that. But let's take Ohio State, for instance. And I'm using Ohio State here because this is the program that keeps landing elite receiver after elite receiver after elite receiver. There's no one in the country right now over the past four or five years that is recruiting five-star receivers the way that Ohio State is. Not just recruiting them, but landing five-star receivers the way that Ohio State is with the regularity that they are. Now, part of that obviously is that their receivers coach, Brian Hartline, is just an awesome coach. Like that's the reality. He's a great coach. He's a great recruiter. He played the position there at Ohio State, just like Kirby played at Georgia. That matters. That carries a lot of credibility when you walk into these high schools, you walk into the homes of these prospects. But there's also this perception of the Ohio State offense that it's just like the fun and gun offense. They throw the ball like nine out of 10 times. And that's just not reality. In fact, if you go back and look at last year, you know who threw the ball more times per game than Ohio State? Yeah, you guessed right. The Georgia Bulldogs. Not by much, but we did throw the ball more times per game than Ohio State did. Ohio State threw the ball 31.5 times per game. We threw the ball 32.1 times per game. Let's take Tennessee as another example. And I use Tennessee because this is an offense that people perceive as being much like Ohio State, a fun and gun, throw the ball down the field, gunslinger type offense. A modern college football offense that is dominated by the pass game. Well, you know how many times Tennessee threw the ball per game last year? 32.1. Again, Georgia threw the ball 32.1 times per game. There was absolutely no difference between Georgia and Tennessee when it came to the rate at which each team threw the football last year. Now, I will admit that historically, we have not been a team that throws the football as much as some of these other schools. I will readily admit that, but that's in the past. If you are looking at college ball right now, Todd Monk can change things for this offense, guys. If we are operating off the most recent history, we are right there with a bunch of these other teams that get credit for being these modern, high-flying, gunslinging type offenses. Now, maybe it'll take a couple more years of putting up those type of passing attempt numbers for it to really take root among these recruits that are being recruited by the University of Georgia. Maybe it'll take a couple more years for us to be able to point at that and say, you know what, this is evidence of a multi-year trend of us throwing the football on a more consistent basis. Maybe that's what it will take, but... Right now, all these opposing coaches, they are more than happy to continue to perpetuate the former reality of what our offense was because it behooves them to do so, regardless of whether it's true or not. 
Again, as I said earlier, you have a bunch of 17, 18-year-old kids being sold a bill of goods by a bunch of professional salesmen. But whatever, I kind of got off track here. Let's go back to the original question that Sam asked me. So do I think that Raiola could convince Mike Matthews to be a dog? I think it's possible. Um, as I said earlier, I don't think that we're the leader for Matthews. I don't expect us to land him. Uh, I think that we could land him, but it's not something I expect right now. I would be at least mildly surprised if we were able to pull that off. It would take a little bit of a reversal from where things are trending right now, but that's also not outside the question. This guy did just come to Athens a couple weeks ago on official visit, so that means we are still at least somewhere in the picture. He's a top 10 prospect, guys. I love him. I think he's an awesome player. I would absolutely love to have him, but as I laid out, it's just an uphill battle for us right now with these top five-star prospects of the wide receiver position. We are going to have to prove it before we can really start to land some of these guys on a more regular basis. I mean, I said it last week, guys. I'll say it again. We still, to this day, only have one 1,000-yard receiver in the history of the Georgia football program. Last year, Marvin Harrison Jr. for Ohio State became the eighth Buckeye in the history of that program to go for over 1,000 yards receiving. So they literally have eight times more 1,000-yard receivers in their program's history than we do in our program's history. That's a really hard sell right now for whoever is our wide receiver coach. Brian McClendon is a hell of a recruiter, guys. He is a hell of a recruiter. In fact, it's a testament to his ability as a recruiter that we are even remotely in the conversation for all these five-star receivers. I do think eventually he will land one, and it might be one of the guys in this class, whether it's Ringo, Matthews, or Smith. In fact, I would say there's a good chance we can land at least one of those guys, but it's an uphill battle, and until we really start to prove it on the field and we start to have some receivers that put up big-time numbers the way some of these other programs do, and we start producing first-round draft picks at the receiver position, it's going to continue to be, to be an issue for us. All right, and the last part of Sam's question here. So if we don't land Matthews, which wide receiver do you feel best about landing to round out the class? I guess if I had to go with one of the three five-star guys. Because right now, our, our receiver class is pretty solid. I really like where we are right now, but it'd be really nice to be able to put that cherry on top of this wide receiver recruiting class that we were putting together. If I had to pick one of those guys, I would probably lean Wingo. It just seems like we've been more of a consistent player in his recruitment than we have with guys like Matthews and certainly with Smith. And if you want to call Carter Nelson a receiver, which I think he very well could fit in that category, I think he's just going to be a kind of a jack-of-all-trades. He'd be a guy that can play some tight end, play some receiver for us. But Carter Nelson's a guy I do feel really strongly about us really landing in this class. But if I'm going to go with the five-star guys, I would say Wingo over Smith and Matthews right now. That's probably the guy I feel best about. All right, sticking with the wide receivers, James has another question. He asks, who do you predict will be in our final wide receiver class? All right, good question, James. Appreciate it, man. Well, first, let's just start with the guys that we currently have on our commit list at the wide receiver position. We have Nykar from Colquitt County. We have Niterion, aka Nitro Tuggle. We have Sokovi White out of Cass. And I really like all three of those guys. I really do. I think we have a very underrated recruiting class right now. Nitro Tuggle, I've told you guys several times since he committed a couple months back, this guy is legit. Like, I think he's a top 50 player nationally. I think he is that good. He's got incredible wiggle. He's got that short area quickness. He's got that quick twitch ability. He can go up and high point the football. I like to see him fill out his frame a little bit. He's tall and lanky, but that comes once you get into a college weight program. I am absolutely over the moon about having this guy on a commit list. I think he could be that guy eventually that could be a thousand yard receiver for us. I think he could be like an Alpha number one dude. I really believe that. And Nykar. Nykar is the dude everyone is sleeping on right now. This guy is an absolute... 
beast. He is legit, man. This dude is, in my opinion, he is he is a prototypical slot receiver. He can play outside. I think he fits best in the slot, and he is a dynamic player in the slot. He's got incredible story of quickness, really good speed. He's got great hands. He can win those tough 50-50 contested balls. And he's actually a really highly rated guy. He's, he's number 55 nationally in the 247 composite. So it's not like he's just some three-star dude that no one's paying attention to. He's a legit highly rated four-star guy that's committed to a major program. And it's it's just like when you think about that, it's kind of baffling to me that this guy doesn't get more attention and more love than he does. And really the reason is like he committed early. When these guys commit early, these recruiting services, they kind of stop paying attention to them. That's the reality because there's no money in that for them. Like there's no drama in that. They want to create drama. They want to create content for all their for all their subscribers. That's how they make money. And when a guy commits really, really early in the process, then that guy is essentially no good to them anymore. And they kind of just stop talking about them. And Carr is a guy that's been committed to Georgia for almost a year. He committed last summer. I think it was in July. So almost a year. And when that happens, you commit that early in your recruitment, then you kind of, you don't fall off the radar because you're still a really talented guy, but you just don't get the publicity that you otherwise would if you drug this thing out. Everyone's still wondering, oh my God, where is Nye Carr going to go? This top 60 player nationally. So don't forget about Carr. That guy can play, man. Like he is a legitimate big time explosive playmaker at the receiver position. And you match him with Nitro Tuggle, who I think is an alpha number one outside receiver. He's an X. Watch out. Like this recruiting class already is really, really good. And to compliment those guys, you got Sokovia White, who's another really good football player. The three guys that we have committed right now, I mean, this is already one of the better recruiting classes that we had over the past 10 years. I actually really like the class that we had last year with Tyler Williams and Yazid Haynes and Anthony Evans. I think all of three of those guys have a chance to be really, really good football players for us. But I think the group that we've got committed right now, I mean, these guys are different. I think that this is a really, really strong group of receivers. So it's not like that, you know, we're, we're hurting for receivers right now. It would just be nice, again, to be able to put that cherry on top and fill out this class with some five-star talent. And I think that we have a shot through that. So if I had to predict how we are going to close at the wide receiver position, I'm going to go Nikar, Nitro Tuggle, Sokovi White. I'm going to throw Carter Nelson in there. I know he could be classified as a tight end. In fact, the most of these recruiting services, they do list him as a tight end. I think I kind of see him more as a jumbo wide receiver right now. Now, could he grow into a full-time tight end? Sure, he could, depending on what happens once he gets into a college weight program. But I think he's almost more of a jumbo wide receiver. That's what he plays in high school. And then that leaves us with one more spot. I think we can take four to five receivers. So you know what? With that last spot, if we're going to take five, Wingo's, Matthew Smith. Uh, like I said earlier, I think I feel best about Wingo. So I'm going to go Wingo there. So I would finish with Nikar, Nitro Tuggle, Sokovi White, Carter Nelson. And then the one I would tentatively put in the class would be Ryan Wingo. And if we do indeed close with that group or anything remotely approaching that group, that will might constitute the best receiver class in the history of Georgia football. And maybe, just maybe, it would start to change a narrative about what our offense is. All right, next up, we got a question that I'm going to answer very quickly. This will not take much time at all. It's not that it's not a good question. There's just not much to talk about here. 
But Brett wants to know about one of the top players in the state of Georgia, a guy named Edric Houston out of Buford High School. You guys know Buford. Everyone knows Buford, right? Big time school. But Brett asks, what are our chances of landing Edric Houston? Again, if you're not familiar with Houston, he is a top 20 player nationally out of Buford. He's a five-star prospect. He's number four player in the state of Georgia, number four defensive lineman in the country. He's 6'3", 255. He's really a five-tech defensive end. That's what he would play in our scheme. But as much as I hate to say it, guys, the answer to this question is very, very simple. Right now, we have basically no chance to land Edric Houston. He's one of those guys that has essentially stated his intention to want to get out of the state. He's another one of these Gwinnett County prospects, a very transient area in the state of Georgia that doesn't really have the the in-state ties the way that some other players from other parts of the state might. And there's also the fact that the five-tech defensive end position in our defense traditionally is not a glamour position. Now, Michael Williams, I know he's a five-tech force. He's a little bit of a different player. He's one of our, our premier pass rushers on the team right now, but that's not traditionally what we have done with that position. Traditionally, that is more of an edge-setting, run-stuffing position. Rushing the passer is very much a secondary function of the players who play that position. I mean, Javon Walker, you would think, well, we could just point to Javon Walker and say, look, this dude is number one pick in the, in the NFL draft. He played five tech for us at the University of Georgia. Well, how many sacks did Javon Walker have in his career at Georgia? Nine and a half, nine and a half. Now that those are big numbers for a Georgia five tech. He had nine and a half sacks, totally had six sacks in, in his junior year, which helped him parlay that season into being the first overall pick in the NFL draft. But he's very much the exception. Now, Michael Williams is more in that vein. So if we start to string together some guys like Trevon Walker and Michael Williams, and we start to change what that position does in our defense, then in the future, maybe we can change that perception much the way hopefully in the future we can change the perception of the wide receiver position in our offense. But historically, you go back and you look at guys like Malik Carey, you look at guys like Jonathan Ledbetter in this Georgia 3-4 Kirby Smart scheme, that five-tech demons of in has not been a premier pass rusher. A guy like Edric Houston is being recruited by other programs, especially programs that play four threes, to essentially be like an edge rusher, to be one of those traditional 4-3 defensive end pass rushers. And while we can point to Javon Walker and say, well, this guy was the number one overall pick in the draft playing that position within our defense, there are simply far more examples of guys getting drafted highly coming out of college that played a 4-3 defensive end pass rushing position. Like Javon Walker, cool, great. That's our one example of that position. There are plenty of other examples that other schools would point at. And the school that right now it looks like has the has the edge for his services is Ohio State. And just think about their history at that position, guys. Think about the Bosa brothers, right? Think about Chase Young. They can sell him on being the next in, in that line of 4-3 defensive ends for them. It's just that give and take. You know, I, I equate this kind of the receivers and tight end question with George. Like we can recruit the hell out of the tight end position, but we struggle to get big time guys at the receiver position. Why? Because there's a perception that Georgia just puts, puts a bunch of tight ends on the field and we want to throw the ball to the tight ends and then we want to run the football and the receivers are just out there to block. Now we know that's not the truth. Maybe once upon a time it was, it's not the truth any longer, but that perception still out there. It still lingers. But no, I do not feel very good about our chances to land Edric Houston. In fact, I, I don't want to say we're 
out of it, but almost kind of. I just, I do not expect that whatsoever. I, I would not get your hopes up on that one. All right, next up here, we've got a question from Keith, and he asks a question about a guy that I told you last week that we were about to land on our commitment list. Did not end up working out that way, but I will explain. So Keith asks, what happened with Joseph Phillips? You seem confident that he would commit to Georgia last week. Where do we go from here at the inside linebacker position after missing on Sammy Brown and now Phillips. First off, thank you for the question, Keith. I really appreciate you checking out the show, being a longtime loyal listener. Definitely appreciate that. And I can respect you kind of calling me out here. I, I get it. This is why, this is why, guys, this is why I really hesitate to bring like predictions, like recruiting predictions on this show because things change in an instant. Like they, they might not change, but they can. And this is one of those examples. So let me let me tell you what went down with Joseph Phillips, okay? This guy visited us back on June 2nd for our first big official visit weekend of the month of June, which is, again, the biggest month in recruiting right now. And at that time, coming off that visit, he was essentially, he was, not essentially, he was, he was, he was a silent commit. He was one of those guys that said, look, guys, I, I, I want to commit to Georgia. I just want to go public right now. And it's like, cool, all right, no worries, we got you. It was Georgia from that point all the way up until like late the night before he committed. So when I recorded that episode last week and told you guys, okay, I know we missed on Sammy Brown, but we're about to land this guy, Joseph Phillips. I think he's a really good player. He's got a really high upside, really explosive player. All those things are true. Really good player. Very, very high on what he can be. But I recorded that episode at about 5.30. And what I was told earlier in that day, earlier in that day, like I got a text, I don't know, 11 o'clock in the morning, something like that, telling me like, okay, he's about to go public. Like it's it's gonna happen. And that was from probably my most reliable source. And that just kind of confirmed what I had been hearing about him for two weeks since his official visit. Because again, after that visit, it wasn't a matter of like, is he gonna commit to Georgia? It is. It was a matter of when will he commit to Georgia? And then I got the, the text saying, hey, the time is now. So when I got on the show last week, when I fired up the mic and did the first edition of this mailbag, I just told you guys, you know, hey, we, we missed on Sammy Brown, but hey, I got something to make you feel a little bit better. We're probably going to land this guy. It looks like it's about to happen. And our coaches felt very good about that. Guys, he had already had people do Georgia edits for him. He was going to commit to Georgia. He was planning on committing to Georgia. But something happened. I would say, you know, Monday night through Tuesday morning, something, the Auburn coaches got a hold of him. They talked to the guy, and I, he's goes to school 50 miles from the Auburn campus. So it's not like Auburn hasn't been in the picture, but they were able to to switch his allegiance. They were able to get him to change his mind. And tip of the cap, tip of the cap, Hugh Freeze. Hugh Freeze has been a really good recruiter for a long time. That's no surprise. But that is why I hesitate to put like recruiting predictions on this show because things change, man. I mean, I got that info from the best source I have who is extraordinarily reliable. And the thing is, when he told me that, it was true. It was true when he told me that. It just wasn't true a couple hours later. These things happen to recruiting. It doesn't always happen that way. More often than not, like the information you get, like when the guy's about to commit, it ends up being true and going down that way. But sometimes you have these crazy commitments and things change at the very last second. And that's exactly what happened there. So what keeps us coming back for more, man, it's one of the things that draws us to this is the drama, the unknown. You just never exactly know what's going to happen when you're talking about 17, 18-year-old dudes. But he's a good player, and Auburn got him a good one, man. I am not happy about losing him to Auburn. I thought he was going to be a really, really good player for us. But it's not all lost, guys, at the inside linebacker position. Look, it's it's a difficult sell for us right now because, again, like I said last week, 
we put together one of the greatest inside linebacker recruiting classes in recent memory. I mean, we loaded up at inside linebacker in this last class. So of course, what are opposing schools going to do? They are going to use that against us. They're going to negatively recruit against us. That's what they do. It's fine. That's just what happens. You got to deal with, you got to overcome it. But the bigger question now, like we can't deal in the past, like whatever it is, what it is looking forward. Where do we go from here at that position? And I'm really excited about two names. And I think that we have a really good shot at both of these guys. I'm I'm not going to make any predictions. I, I After the, the Phillips thing, I, I'm not making any predictions when it comes to inside linebacker right now. But there are three names to watch here. All right, three names to watch. Now, first off, by the way, we still have a five-star dude by the name of Demarcus Riddick that is committed at the inside linebacker position. I would, however, call it a tenuous commitment because it's one of these weird things. So the guy's on our commit list. He committed months ago, a while ago. He's out of Alabama, okay? So he's an Alabama kid. And states like that, it's tougher to get players out of those states because they typically have the in-state ties. Like, they're born in that state. They grew up in that state. Their family has roots in the in the in that state. It's just tougher. There's very few people like move to Alabama, like just to move to Alabama. Like that doesn't happen. Very few people move to Louisiana just to move to Louisiana. That doesn't really happen. Most of the people who live in those states were born in those states. They grew up in those states. Their families have roots in those states. And that's true in a lot of parts of Georgia, but the metro area, it's not, right? And that's why you tend to see a lot of these guys from Gwinnett County and other metro counties end up going elsewhere because they don't have the roots. They don't have the in-state ties. That's why it's tougher to get guys out of Alabama and states like that because they do, typically speaking, have those roots, have those in-state ties. So it's it's a weird situation where he's been committed to us, but he announced like last week or his mother announced last week that he'll be making his final decision in July. It's like, what? Wait, wait. You're committed to us. You publicly committed to Georgia, but you're going to be making your quote-unquote final decision in July. Read into that what you will. I, I Obviously, Alabama is still recruiting him heavily. Auburn is still recruiting him heavily. I would love to think that we're going to be able to keep him on our commitment list. But again, with the re- recruiting class we signed at linebacker last year, getting these five-star guys in this class, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough, especially with other schools and say, hey, like, we have immediate playing time for you. Come here. You can play right away. You're not going to sit, sit behind this guy and that guy and this guy and this guy and not play until you're a junior. So we'll see how that ends up working out, but he's a really, really good player. He's awesome. But there's three other guys to watch moving forward. So the first one is the most highly rated guy. His name is Justin Williams. He's a Texas kid. He's a five-star prospect. He's number 12 nationally, the number one inside linebacker in the country according to the 247 composite. And the guy is awesome. Like he's athletic. He's powerful. He's everything you want in an inside linebacker. He's 6'2", 205. Like he fits the bill. He's got the goods. Are we going to land him? I don't know. I, I We have a shot. Well, I'll say that because he is coming here to Athens on an official visit this weekend. This is a huge, huge visit. This is a big time prospect, especially at this position. Like we need to take at least two guys. Like it's not the most pressing position based off how we were able to recruit that position, not just last year, but in previous couple of cycles, but you still need to bring in two solid players at this position. And he is the best on the board right now. He's better than Sammy Brown. Before you ask, yes, he's better than Sammy Brown. No, that is not sour grapes. Sammy Brown's a really good player. This guy is better. So his visit this weekend will certainly be worth monitoring and we'll just see where we are after the visit. But it's a really good sign that he's coming to campus, official visit, and we're going to put our best foot forward. We'll just see if it's enough. Then the other two guys, I feel much better about our chances of landing these two guys, at least one of the two. Chris Cole. This guy, I really, really like Chris Cole, okay? 
He's a Virginia kid. He's only ranked number 193 nationally. He's still a four-star guy, but 193, I think is that's underselling this guy. I love his athleticism. I love his length. He reminds me a lot of Quay Walker when Quay was in high school at Crips County. He's tall. He's long. He's lean. He's crazy athletic. He's really rangy. He's really explosive. He covers a lot of ground with really long legs. In fact, he's so athletic and he's so good in space that... There are situations where they actually use him at safety on his high school team. Like he is that athletic and he's big enough. He's got the frame to play inside. He plays off the ball. He plays outside linebacker, but in a 4-3. So he's playing off the ball and that translates to an inside linebacker in our 3-4 defense. He needs to fill out. He needs to gain some weight, a lot like Quay did back in the day, but he's got the physical goods, man. Again, 6'3", 210 reminds me so much of Quay Walker. I don't think he's going to be a guy that would come in right away and be a big-time contributor, just like Quay Walker wasn't ready right away. Remember, guys, their freshman year, Channing Tindall and Quay Walker came in the same recruiting class, right? Who was it that was playing their freshman year? It wasn't Quay. It was Channing. But by the time they got to their junior season, it was Quay. Quay just wasn't as polished coming to high school. He needed a little bit more work, but his physical upside was always higher than what Tindall's was, and that's why Quay got himself drafted in the first round. And I see a lot of Quay Walker in Chris Cole. I really, really like this guy. Again, I don't think he'd be a, an immediate contributor, but the thing is he doesn't have to be. We are so loaded that position. It gives us the luxury of bringing him in and allowing him time to develop and fill out that frame to where he can grow into a big time player. He does have first round draft pick potential. Will he ultimately get there? I don't know. You never know what these guys are made of. Like how do they work? What's their attitude like? You don't know those things, but I can tell you physically speaking, this guy's got the goods and he's certainly somebody to watch out for. The other name to watch out for here, I also feel really good about him, is a guy by the name of Christopher Jones. He is also out of Virginia, out of Fairfax, and he is a bigger guy. He's listed at 6'3". He just doesn't look quite as long as Cole does, but he's bigger. His frame is certainly filled out. He's 231. like He's 230 pounds right now. And they use him a little bit differently at the high school level. They they would use him as an edge rusher part of the time. And he'll also stand up and play like inside linebacker for them. But he does a lot of pass rushing for them. But he is extraordinarily athletic in his own right. He's a violent player. He's fast, athletic, sudden, violent. Basically all the things that you want in, a, in an inside linebacker, right? He's a four-star guy like Cole is. He's number 125 nationally. And like Cole... Like, I love the upside, man. I think he'd be a little bit more college-ready coming in his freshman year than Cole would be, but I think both these guys have big-time upsides. And that's the thing with a guy like Sammy Brown. Go back to him from last week. Obviously, we were recruiting him heavily from Jefferson, just about 20 minutes from Athens. Ends up committing to Clemson. Everybody wants to point and laugh at Georgia. And as I have consistently said when it concerns Sammy Brown, he's a really good player, man. He's a really good athlete. He's going to be good for Clemson. But when you look at a guy like Sammy Brown, who's been a high-profile recruit going back to essentially his sophomore year, you just wonder sometimes if guys like that kind of maxed out physically earlier in high school and question, do they have quite the ceiling that some of these other guys do? I would say Sammy Brown has a higher floor than Jones and Cole do. But I honestly, truly, in my heart of hearts, believe both of those guys have higher long-term ceilings if they can get to those things. That's, that's always the big question. That's the if. Like, can they get there? But from a physical package standpoint, I think both those guys have higher ceilings than what Sammy Brown does. So if we were able to land either one of Cole or Jones, 
I would be a very, very happy man, especially if we were able to keep Demarcus Riddick in the fold at inside linebacker. Okay, guys, I just looked down and we've been recording for over an hour now. So we got two more questions. I'm going to try to run through these pretty quickly here and then I'll get you guys out of here today. We got a question from Garrett who asked, looking ahead to 2025, which position is the most crucial recruiting wise? I don't know. That's a tough question to answer because a lot of that depends on how we finish this 2024 recruiting class. But from where I am sitting right now, the position I would point to would be offensive tackle. I love what we have on campus right now. I think Ernest Green is going to be a big-time player for us. Amarius Mims is going to be awesome this year. I'm really high on Monroe Freely. Now, he's a guy that needed to fill out his frame a little bit, but based off what I've heard, the feedback I've gotten after spring practice from there to where we are right now is this guy has really taken to the, the strength training program has really added on some good weight already. I think he's going to be a big-time for us. But Green is going to be a third-year guy next year. If he ends up being as good as I think to be, he could be eligible to declare for the NFL draft. And I, that would leave us with feeling, but who's our next option at tackle? And we've recruited some good players, but I don't know if there's a surefire guy waiting in the wings right now. And the thing is, in this 2024 recruiting class, I'm not, I'm not just talking about the state of Georgia, across the country, the offensive tackle position is down. I do think that we will end up finishing the offensive line class with some good players at the tackle position. I think Marquise Easley is a guy to watch out for. Dahoon, Nair Daniels, who, by the way, is like 6'8", 360. He's just a massive human being. Already got Marcus Harrison and Malachi Tolliver committed, which both those guys can play tackle. But none of those guys are like surefire, five-star, can't-miss offensive tackle prospects. I don't know if those guys exist. It's the hardest position, in my opinion, to evaluate on an annual basis. But I do foresee that position being a spot where we really need to land like some big time offensive tackle prospects, guys that could be like plug and play type guys for us at that position, potentially. But the, the reality is, here's the good thing, guys. We are such good position across the entire roster that we don't really have like a glaring coming to next season. It's like, oh, we've got to go target this position. Now we have to refill the coffers. You could have to continue to do that annually, year after year. But we don't really have a position on the roster right now that is a massive deficiency for us. Like, we have got to load up. I would have said outside linebacker in, you know, last year, but we've really addressed that need in a big way. Of course, I would love to continue to see us build out that wide receiver room and add more like big-time talent at that position. But I think we've got some really good players in that room right now. But, you know, you can never have enough of those guys. So I, I, I don't really think there's a glaring weakness right now going into 2025 or a position that we have to hit in a big way. But if there was one, I guess I would lean offensive tackle. All right, and finally today, guys, the last question here comes from Trent. Uh, I appreciate it, Trent. Trent asks, when are we actually going to get some momentum in this recruiting class? Well, you might hear me chuckling a little bit there. I love you, Trent. Appreciate it, man. But uh, I don't know. Is the number one class not enough momentum for you? I guess I get where you're coming from to a degree. I know Florida's had a big week or two, and they moved all the way up to number three in the 247 composite rings. While I guess that we've missed on a couple of guys, but we still are number one in the 247 team rankings. Now, I know it's still early, halfway through the cycle, but... We are still in really good position. But if you want momentum, if that's what you're after, I do not think that you will have to wait very long. Like I said earlier, I'm very hesitant after last week to throw out any specific predictions out there, but I will just throw this out there. I think you guys will be happy 
by the time the end of the week rolls around. Because if what I'm hearing is true, and I have every reason to think it is, but I just, I'm gun shy when it comes to predictions after last week because these things change. But based off what I'm hearing, we could get multiple commits this week. So I hope that would be enough momentum for you guys as we move towards the end of June. But all right, guys, uh, we did it, man. We uh, we got through all of the questions. There is one more question I have, but I'm going to hold it. It's a really big question, and if I dove into it right now, it would make this episode probably like another 30 minutes. It's a big-time question. So I know, Ben, you sent a really good question about locking down the state of Georgia. It's an awesome question. I'm not trying to ignore it. In fact, it's so good that I want to use it on another episode, maybe even a full-on episode to like really dive into that because that's a big-time, big-picture question that I have a lot to say about. I have some strong opinions on the idea that Georgia isn't, quote-unquote, locking down the state. So we'll save that for another day, but we've got through the rest of them, guys. I really appreciate you, number one, sending all these questions in, interacting with us on social media. We really appreciate that. I appreciate that. We do this show for you guys. That's the reality of it. We do this show for you. We want to give you the best Georgia content that we possibly can. And I love it. I love it when we get a chance to answer all of your like specific questions directly. So thank you guys. Appreciate you. I will be back later in the week. But until then, as always, go dogs.